Well, hello everyone and welcome to the Sub-Zero Copy Podcast. I'm Kirk Pearson, host of the podcast, and I'm joined today by a close friend of mine and special guest. And it's about a topic that will will sort of uh, have a particular amount of importance and relevance to those living in Australia, specifically Melbourne, um, who where, where I live. And, and last week when I was on the podcast with John Gordon, we were talking about being in a stage three lockdown. That's now been upgraded to a stage four. So we're all... Staying, staying the hell home, so to speak. Um, so today's guest is a cafe owner, a cafe owner who's had an absolute hell of a year, um, which you know we'll elaborate on a bit later. But today's guest is a former colleague and friend of mine, Daniel Dick. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kate. No worries, mate. Uh, Dan, we always start the podcast by introducing the the, the listener to to this to to who I'm interviewing. So obviously, on your name is Dan Dick. You were born and raised in Melbourne. That's correct, mate. And where were you born specifically? Um, I was born in a hospital that uh, I don't believe exists anymore in South Melbourne. Um, but born into a family in Surrey Hills and spent most of my formative years. Um, in, in the hills, uh, mm-hmm. went to the primary school around the corner, mm-hmm. moved to Camberwell, um, went to school in Camberwell, um, and not until, uh, you know, more or less in my early 20s, sort of moved uh, closer to the city and now live in Hawthorne with my beautiful wife, Alexandra, we have done um, for the last five years. Excellent. And and Dan, what what is what are some of your interests outside of coffee? We want to get to know the man behind the Dan. <laughs> Um, outside of coffee, I look, I mean, generally speaking, hospitality has been, been my life for, you know, at least a third of my life. Um, working in either cafes or restaurants, got my start in a pizza shop at good old Pizza Hut at 14 and nine months of the day. Oh, and yeah, I love pizza. yeah, getting paid $5.50 an hour and getting charged $35 for a polo shirt and a hat, worked your first two shifts for free, that sort of thing. But, um, no, I'm a massive fan of it, the industry at large. And it's, it's, um, yeah a good thing, good place to be when you work in it. But, you know, like I'm a massive fan of Melbourne hospitality, in particular the wine scene, I'm very much into my wines. Um, anyone who follows me on Instagram, uh, probably aware of that. Um, you know, most nights at the moment, particularly there's not too much else to do, yep. share with people and, you know, always happy to give my recommendations. Um, outside of that, made a massive Hawks fan. So That would be, know, the, Haw- that would be the Hawthorne Hawks in the AFL, right? That's correct, mate. Yeah. We're... Um, yeah, a bit of a dynasty over the last particular you know, 50-odd years, but yeah, not as strong at the moment, but 2013, 14, 15 were some pretty good years and uh, you know, live in the heartland and absolutely love my AFL. So that's probably the, the, the two big ones, wine and footy. You East Melbourne wanker. Hey, going back to uh-huh. um, going back to Pizza Hut, it was Pizza Hut brings back you know particularly good memories for me because I'm from Terrigal on the New South Wales Central Coast, which is, you know, north of where we are right now and there used to be a pizza hut next to a blockbuster and you know they're like the two best things ever so when you combine them in unison it was like it was like your one-stop shop back in the day you'd go you'd order your pizza over the phone you'd go to you'd go to blockbuster maybe rent a playstation 2 game you know there was some back then they had nintendo 64 (laughs) games dragon ball z producing a few new movies back in the day so that was pretty interesting i always i always enjoyed um you know, there was the Sandlot Kids, Undercover Brother, another classic movie. If anyone's seen Undercover Brother, um, send me a message oh, wow. if you want to talk about it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I have. Oh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the greatest movies of all time. I wish I had 
if I wish I knew we were going to talk about this, I could have programmed some some little sound effects into the that I could have played. But anyway, um, all right. And you also said that you were interested in wine. I'm not quite the wine drinker that you are, but I know you're very very into your wine. At what point did you sort of realize that? So you've mentioned quite a lot now that you you're obviously a massive fan of hospitality. You love working mm-hmm. in the industry. At what point did you think, oh, I could work in this full time? Because a lot of people, you know, they probably try it and think, oh, geez, I, this is the last thing I want to do um, for the rest of my life. And, you know, fair enough. It's not, not everyone's cup of tea. But at what point did you sort of think that, oh, geez, this could, this could be me? Um, look, I think it was probably uh, – I dropped out of uni twice. Um, more or less. What, what were you um, studying both times? So I, I finished at Campbell Grammar in 2007. I took a gap year and then was accepted into a Bachelor of Arts at Monash mm. um, and got through the first semester relatively well. And by midway through the second semester, I, I knew it would have been an incorrect choice. Uh, so I left that course and was accepted into a Bachelor of Business Marketing at RMIT, um, which I got through about two years of. Um, and really enjoyed elements of, um, particularly the marketing side of things, but to make up a business degree, you have to do a number of subjects mm. to get the credits. And, and for, for me, I'm, I'm sort of an all or nothing person when it comes to education. I'm not a student that learns in the archetypal sort of way, um, particularly university when there's no one you know, with a boot up yet to get you to submit work. When I wasn't interested, it was just... No, nah, I'm not going to engage at all. Um, and that in itself provided a conundrum that was impossible to get past, you know, because to participate in and succeed at university, you need to be able to play by the rules. There's not sort of a pick your own adventure sort of approach to that sort of education. And I've become pretty frustrated with that. Mm. Um, and I was working part time at the time at a restaurant. Um, I used to be the. I've worked there for a number of years to support myself Friday night, Saturday night sort of thing and then was picking up more and more shifts because financially that was sort of what I wanted to do. I'd moved out of home. Um, I was enjoying you know, university slash work life, the freedom of living under your own roof um, and found it really alluring just to take shifts at the restaurant as opposed to going to university at times. So I've become pretty aware of the fact that I was keen on hospitality and that I could work that grind effectively but I think once I was struck with the choice um, or the the understanding that I needed to make a choice about what I was going to do with my life after essentially getting rid of you know the pathway of university I wasn't going to become um, a consultant at a marketing firm anymore I loved business I liked I think I understood that one of the things that I'd engaged with at university was the understanding of making a working model um, and being able to sell those parts. Mm. So that took me um, to the realisation that I needed to work full-time. Um, obviously, nighttime hospitality is, is challenging, um, you know, particularly if you have a relationship, and I did at the time. My now wife was my girlfriend at the time, and I didn't necessarily want to make that commitment to spending all the waking hours that she had spare um, at work. So I got a job in a cafe because at that stage, this was about 2011, um, mm. the coffee scene was starting to get pretty hot, you know, and uh, there was a coffee shop uh, around the corner from, from where my wife um, used to live in Baldwin called Snow Pony, and I applied there and they sent me over to their brother's store, Portion Mr. Jones, 
um, in Hawthorne, and that's sort of, I guess, my introduction into coffee. And from, I guess, in a roundabout way of answering your question, I'd understood that I wanted to work in hospitality, that I'd made that commitment, but I knew very early on um, that I wanted to own my own venue. So from there, it basically became an exercise of gaining relevant experience um, in a variety of situations and businesses that would, I guess, allow me to focus my skill set and determine exactly how to apply that best um, when the opportunity arose. Exactly. Uh, very well answered. Um, and so to, from, from the, that introduction to coffee to where we are now, in between then you've worked, you know, at some pretty prominent, prominent um, coffee, coffee bars, you and I both worked yeah. at St. Ali, and then that you worked in wholesale, uh, so selling coffee to wholesale customers and managing accounts for a brief period. You managed another business in between that time and to now where you now own your own business in Campbell, correct? Yeah, that's right. Well, it seems like I know you just as well as you do, Dan. <laughs> Perhaps not quite. No, look, as I, as I said, I think um, I took the approach of trying to broaden my perspective when it came to coffee businesses um, yeah, with the ambition that I'd take the, the first best opportunity um, and the reality is that it takes time and, and there's a lot of false starts you get in between there and in between you know, developing your skill set and pursuing opportunities for your own business and you know, that took me to some places like Three Bags Full, I worked there towards the tail end of the Mulberry Group's tenure. Um, so I was there for the, the, their first transfer into a new business owner, um, and I worked for, for Juice Coffee Roasters shortly after that. Opened up their flagship, flagship espresso bar, which still is one of the busiest. Um, not right now because the CBD is hurting, but mm. um, in, in good times, the, the Juice Espresso Bar is, is renowned for putting out huge volume at very high quality. And I was part of the team that sort of really, I guess forged the path there um, and was eventually um, headhunted by Lachlan Ward, the wholesale general manager, then retail general manager, to go over to, to join, the, join the team at St. Ali. And um, yeah, that opened up, up a whole series of doors for me. Um, yeah, I've been associated with, with St. Ali, the brand, for over five years. I, I stayed with them in that, that time for about two years before opening up my first business. Um, which we call Age of Sale, uh, which we sort of really took a lot of the lessons that I've learned from Dukes actually in setting it up because it predominantly was an espresso bar in Taronga Village, mm. um, which borders uh, the major sort of Coles, West Farmer, um, area Coles head office being around the corner and same with the Bunnings head, head office. So there's anywhere between four and 5,000. And for anyone um, listening overseas, there are two major retailers in, in, um, in Australia that Dan's Cafe was situa situated in. But sorry, Dan, go on. Yeah, yeah, thanks for uh, clarifying that. But yeah, so a huge amount of office work as we set up a high-paced, high-quality environment in um, uh, with several business partners there. So I guess that in itself um, was an interesting experience because you go from working for people um, with a fairly narrow... Um, you think when you're a head barista at a, at a store or even a venue manager that you've got... Um, lots of responsibilities, but it sort of pales in comparison uh, to when you actually have to run the entirety of the venue, even in when you have a business relationship with several you know, partners. So it, that was in itself, that was in 2015, that was a pretty big wake-up call for me, really. And that's led to led you to where you are now, because you, you now own your own, another cafe called Nigel. 
And that's right. When did when when did when did that start? Remind me. Uh, March last year, twenty nineteen. So I um I sold my shares uh, age of sale um in the end of twenty sixteen and found myself in a training wholesale account support role at Tano Lee, uh, which quickly changed into. Um, one of the wholesale managers in sales, which I did for about two years. Um, but the whole time I was at St. Ali, I'd sort of always had the idea that I'd get back into operations and owning my own venues. Um, and finally, the opportunity came for Nigel, which is just a sleepy little humble espresso bar um, in a similar situation. And I thought it was the right one. And, you know, we pulled the trigger in, in March 2019. And I did my best to try and maintained both relationships. I got the ben- I took a sabbatical, got the venue started, um, was working at, on a part-time basis um, in sales at San Ali, um, and then eventually back to a full-time basis at the end of 2019, start of 2020, and then everything happened. Yeah, well, um, this, this all, this all um, segues really nicely into to what, what I particularly wanted to bring you on and talk about, and that's uh, the major topic would be owning a cafe during this crisis. Now, so in Victoria, the state or province that we're in in Australia, where, as I mentioned before, we're in a stage four lockdown, which pretty much means you, can, you can't really leave your house for uh, any reason that's not really important. And you, if you're allowed to go out and exercise for one hour of the day, one person can leave the household to go do the essential shopping per day for that whole household. But cafes are uh, allowed to remain open, which is, you know, which is okay and in some way is humane, but it, the, there's kind of a bit of a question mark over the legality of actually going to a cafe in a sense. So for on one hand, you can stay open if you're a cafe owner, but on the second hand, you might be breaching the, uh, the current laws or the restrictions right now in going to a cafe, which is obviously a bit problematic. But before we go much more into that, Dan, when this... When coronavirus, in my memory, coronavirus, I started first hearing about it in January, and uh, that was it, at the time it was exclusively in China that we knew of. Um, and then within uh, during February, I think everyone was quite of the view that this will come to Australia, but it might be a bit more of a swine flu situation back in '09. And then it started really spreading in March, and then some some shutdowns and lockdowns started happening, and I, I, everyone in Australia has been in, affected by it in some way. Um, at what point did you sort of see, as a business owner, so I want Dan, the business owner's sort of um, answer here, at what point did you think that the crisis could start having a major impact on your business? Well, I think it was becoming inevitable by the end of February um, and the start of March I made um, adjustments uh, to make sure that I was ready for it. But, you know, I think like you and many others, we're sort of we're sitting here in January having, you know, thinking about it, thinking perhaps that it, it wouldn't reach us. But by, you know, that stage in, in February, it was, it was apparent that this was going to have pretty major ramifications to the way we were going to conduct business. Um, and not, not just limited to the way we conduct business, but the way people um, live their lives every day. Um, so I saw it coming and it was becoming, it was making me anxious towards the end of February. Um, and at the same time, I had a couple of staffing issues, which, um, you know, ended up in a resignation of, yeah, one of my full time, my full time manager. 
And I remember walking into um, Salvatore's office and saying, look, I don't think this is going anywhere. I, I need to be um, solely focused on making sure that my business gets through this. Um, mm. And, um, yeah, it was a really tough decision um, to make, but I guess one that was partially made for me by, by the circumstances because within two and a half weeks of having gone back to work in my business, we were facing uh, you know, the, the, the initial lockdown um, level three, uh, which, as you say, it opened up a whole issue, amount of issues um, for, for operators in terms of you know, how, how they were going to, whether they could or should um, continue to trade. I remember having that thought um, to myself at the, at the time, and we, we initially closed um, for about three weeks um, in the first lockdown because my biggest concern was whether or not I was being responsible, not only to the general public, but to not importantly my, my staff and, and putting them in a situation where this infectious disease um, could put them at risk. So we made that decision um, to, to shut the doors. Yeah, and it's interesting that you uh, interesting that you say uh, in that answer that it has a the whole the coronavirus uh, and and the lockdowns that have sort of eventuated because of it have changed not only you know the, the coffee industry but they've changed life as we know it and they've changed working life as we know it. And going back to what you said before about you know Dukes before being one of the busiest coffee. Uh, espresso bars in in the city and it is it absolutely it absolutely you know slams you know they're making thousands of coffees a day i would assume to so you look at probably what they were doing pre-covid and what i assume they're doing now life's vastly different because working patterns are changing high-rise buildings as the as you know that which we have a lot of in in melbourne you know people congregating or traveling to go to work at the moment, it seems like that uh, I, I can't really remember a time when that was really permissible. It seems like that is so far away from returning, and so you've got all these venues, like you know, very famous and prominent venues uh, in the city. So you're, you're mentioning Jukes, something like Patricia's. Um, Rid me off some more, Dan. There's uh, Manchester, the, the Century Lab, the Century Lab stores, yeah, Century Lab stores. All those stores would be that have what. 90% of their clientele just not permitted to be in the area? Well, I know for a fact a number of those those operators have decided that the, um, it's not worth it and they've, they've closed the doors, um, the CBD particularly being hit like that. I mean, you know, friends of mine are in the restaurant game, have that three-story venue on Swanston Street and they've been closed since March and, and thinking to themselves, uh, what's it going to look like when it comes back because people are certain that, you know, the occupancy rate isn't going to go back from what it is at the moment, maybe 5% in the city to, you know, 100% within, with, you know, the flick of a switch. It's going to take weeks, if not months, for consumer sentiment to be, you know, confident enough for, for, for major large-scale offices to, to return to work. And, you know, one of my concerns, so my business um, is in, you know, I, call, I jokingly call it the, the, the Central Business District of Camberwell, um, which, you know, predominantly a, a suburban area, but I'm on a main strip um, with, you know, pretty high density of offices around me. Um, and what was fortunate for us in that, you know, we rely pretty heavily on one of the major offices directly opposite the business, which houses somewhere between five and 600 um, workers Monday to Friday, which closed pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the risk that they um, weren't prepared to bear based on the density of that building. 
Um, but a number of the other offices around us were, you know, smaller in scale. So, you know, they might have half of a floor as opposed to the entire building or the entire floor. Um, and they were able to, you know, more or less work on a reduced workforce. A lot of those people, depending on the, the nature of the business, a lot of sort of finance and consulting firms um, were managing, particularly with their, some of their older staff, to work from home. And I've had com- conversations with a number of my staff, um, my customers have told me, oh, yeah, well, you're, you're never going to see that guy again because he's working from his, his beach house now and he's never coming back sort of thing. So the answer to the question what the permanent landscape is going to look like from an occupancy perspective and whether or not a lot of those sort of small-scale businesses don't go, well, why do we need the 1,000-square-metre um, office when we can get by with a 200-square-metre, have people work from home and commuting uh, to a central location when it's important? You know, rather than it being the other way around. So that in itself, I guess, will change the face in which a lot of coffee shops in particular um, and, you know, hospitality venues at large will, will trade in the future. And the, the, the short answer is that we don't know what's going to happen, but we've got to be prepared as much as we can um, to, to face that when and if it, it happens. And you know, from my perspective, that start, that's already started. So you know, I've already made this aware to my leasing agent and landlord Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that you know the the situation that we'd entered into, or the, the agreement that we've entered into, were on terms that were no longer secured, and that we'd need to enter into a conversation to change that. Um, well, this this is something know, once we have more clarity. This is something I'd love to pose a question to you, Dan. There could could there be significant legal um, sort of ramifications for this? So, say for example, you look at an insurance contract where. Um, you know, say for example, you wanted to get your house or your car covered, and written in the contract are certain things like you know negligence or an act of God. Do you think pandemics will be looked at in a legal sense, or will in a say for example, you're going to get a commercial lease on a cafe, and um, and this it, two or three years down the line, once COVID is hopefully over, and you're looking at this space and you've got the anxiety from what's just happened, um, you know, years back. Do you think you would want to enter an agreement with your commercial lawyer or and your whoever you're leasing a building from? There should be a pandemic clause or a clause to. Well, I think that's a good point, Kirk. And and, and the answer to that is that in a lot of larger scale operations, um, a clause like that does exist. It's referred to as a material adverse um, or a MAC, material adverse claim. And I've heard of um, and it's well publicised. There's a, a pub group in in Melbourne. Has you know a dozen venues over over Melbourne, um, the Sand Hill Group, and they were selling private equity for a deal worth close to two hundred million. Um, that the equity group was able to um, they they signed off there in a trial period, and then um, the pandemic hits, they uh, refer to the material adverse claims clause um, and get out of the deal, and all of a sudden Sand Hill are stuck you know, with you know, sitting ducks in the water with all these venues that they can't operate essentially. So whether or not something like that becomes more widespread in the future um, remains to be seen. But I can tell you from my perspective that once I, if I look into businesses in the future, I'm certainly going to be looking at having a, a clause like that um, in the lease. Because why should the operator bear the entire risk of a you know, like of something that happens like this that's entirely outside of the control um, and, and to the point I was making before, it's not just about the period that we're undergoing now. It's about the potential for things like this to change the way that we do business 
um, permanently, and this um, which remains this the big thing. This isn't just exclusive to hospitality as well. This could be, you know, retail, many, many different sectors of the of the Australian and perhaps even global economy. I think this could really, really impact because this is uh, this has flipped life on its head this year. And you know, we're we're all managing mentally and whatnot, but this is really going to change things the way the way things are done forever. And like you said, why should a business owner like yourself have to wear the entire cost? That being said, commercial landlords that that we shouldn't operate under the assumption that all of them are sort of real estate tycoons. There'd be a lot of people losing money at the moment because tenants cannot possibly pay their lease and then landlords cannot possibly repay loans at at the rate they were before. Um, So a lot of people are hurting here, but you're right. It shouldn't be just uh, an obligation of yours. The risk shouldn't shouldn't be borne entirely by the operator, which is a point that I've spoken at um, with colleagues at length. And and look, I think more to that point as well will will be seen is that um, I I believe that the wait for VCAT or a VCAT hearing to have a tenant evicted in a business sense is close to 12 months at the moment. So... Um, the, the the security that a lot of businesses have at the moment is that the, the bargaining power is fortunately um, favouring the tenant at the moment. Not that as many people know about that, but mm. you know, I, I I've been looking at having you know, you know, the next lease I sign. You know, the standard practice is for there to be a three months of three months of rent security deposit, and I'm just not going to agree to signing those sorts of risks. You know, like why should I have you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars of my business's money sitting in um, sitting in an account, uh, you know, albeit accruing interest, just on on the instance that the business goes down um, and the landlord doesn't get left with unpaid rent. You know, it's, it's not the way things are going to go. In, in an industry with already razor sharp, bloody razor thin margins, um, you can't really afford to have that amount of capital just, you know, not active in your business. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and um, and. Dan, just going back to what you said about you're obviously talking a little bit about your staff before and you felt like you had a moral obligation to keeping them healthy. Um, in Australia, there's been a wage subsidy introduced to the tune of 1500 Australian dollars a fortnight. So that money goes to the business to pay employees. In Australia, it's called JobKeeper. And uh, and Dan, uh, from my understanding, you, were, you are eligible for that and you, you have been receiving that and been able to keep one of your staff members on. Um, how important has that been for you? And, you know, do you have an, ex- do you, do you, do you fear uh, for the, do you think there's an obligation of the government to make sure that business returns or the environment for business returns to normal before they remove such a subsidy? Because in effect, they've forcibly closed down your industry. It needed to happen for the betterment of society. Yes, we all know that, but the government did closed down the industry and they've done it again. So um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, you've, you've summed that up really well. Um, without it at the moment, businesses like mine don't trade at all. Um, yeah, because you, know, you, you still have to be in a position more or less to either have savings to have paid the wages a month in advance or have the cash flow um, moving forward. Now, what happens if in September one when that arrangement um, is diminished from what it's been put out and they said 1500 and fortnight down to 1200 if the businesses offices haven't opened back up again um, and all of a sudden we can't afford to pay that and then you start going into negatives um, and it, it can get really ugly so my you know my hope is that they are pragmatic in that approach um, to, to that sum you know, like obviously they're 
every day that they have to continue subsidising wages, um, the debt continues to grow and grow and grow. And you know, their priority has got to be to make sure that we come out of this whole thing um, at least with some consumer sentiment that's going to help you know, the economy get back on its feet. Um, but they, they, they can't pull it out. You know, they couldn't pull the rug out from underneath us that soon. Otherwise, there's no incentive for people to stay open to begin with. You know, So mm. it's, it's, a, it's going to be a fine balance um, once it does start to, to change back. But it's, at the moment, it's, it's, you know, without it, you know, my doors are closed, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and and just coupling in with all this, so it's obviously as a business operator, it's been um, a challenging year as we've elaborated on. But you've had some pretty awful personal circumstances go on alongside this, and so if you don't mind me introducing the sort of the um, the, the what what I'm talking about here, Dan, and also you know, thank you very much for being so generous and um, being willing to sort of share your personal stories. Uh, what you and your wife obviously were expecting twin boys earlier in the year and and unfortunately um, there were complications with the pregnancy and 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 you lost both of your boys George and Henry and, and it's like this is tough for me to introduce because oh man it's obviously a, a tragic thing to happen but I remember talking to you about um, talking to you about you know how excited you were for it and it's been such a shocking year to have that go on. I don't even know what to say. It's just, you know, my heart goes out to you. And, you know, this this is, um, you know, this is important, I think, that and very, I'm very grateful, again, for you uh, uh, coming on and talking about this. But, you know, everyone is battling the coronavirus and, and a lot of business operators are battling it from that, uh, from the business at, uh, point. But, you know, you're also battling the personal side of this as well. Um, I can't even begin to imagine the heartache that sort of and the stress that comes along with all of this coming together. Yeah, look, we've um, we had some really dark days, um, some really dark days, mate, and that's, uh, I guess, to put a little context into it, we uh, found out we were having twins in December last year um, and we're pretty ecstatic. We don't have the twin gene in our family, so um, we couldn't have expected something like this to have happened, but the identical, identical twins don't require um, a history of twins in the family. It's a, you know, a genetic mutation. Freaks of nature or little miracles, whichever way you want to look at it. And it took some time just to get around to the fact that, you know, you're prepared for having one and all of a sudden you're going to get two. But it was kind of funny. I'd always joked with my wife that, you know, we're going to get a little girl first and then bang, twin boys, just two little clones, mm. look like me. Um act like me and run mark like me and you know we um i remember it we'd sort of been dealing with this, everything that was happening and this was um on the 19th of march um i got a message from my wife alexandra saying that she'd been a bit uncomfortable um i took her into the hospital to get some scans um they said everything's okay um maybe just go and get some uh, some medicine which we did went to uh, get a a hormone that helps with these sorts of things. By the time we got there, um, it's into the evening and she's having, you know, the, the discomfort's getting worse. So we went back to the hospital. Um, the obstetrician took one look and said, uh, uh, you're going into preterm labor. Um, and this was, the boys were at 20 weeks um, and they weren't going to survive. And there was nothing that we could do. There was nothing that triggered it. It was entirely arbitrary. Um, and, 
you know, worst part of that whole thing is that uh, my wife had to labour. Um, so yeah, anything that we would have done to potentially, you know, spared the horror of the whole situation, we couldn't do. Um, so we had to go through the whole thing, um, which in itself was a massive, massive trauma, um, mm. knowing that you're going to deliver children that would never, never make it. Um, and yeah, as I said, it was the, the worst day of my life. It's dark, dark days and. The next day, the announcement went out that we were going into stage three restrictions. Um, and with that and what was going on with me personally, it was also why I made the decision to close my doors for some time just to, you know, to breathe and to adjust and take stock of what was going on. Um, but no, look, I think one of the important things I've learned from this whole thing is, as you said, like coronavirus has taken a toll on people mentally, you know, really, the buzzword being unprecedented, but an unprecedented way um, because of the isolation that people have had to deal with um, over this time and in in a way people, you know, haven't been able to have weddings have been cancelled, holidays have been cancelled, but just simple joys of being able to go into an office and see your colleagues can't, exist at the moment and for us you know we we had to deal with a major personal um trauma throughout this we couldn't have a funeral for our children we had um our 10 closest family and friends stand in a park in hawthorne a meter and a half away from each other getting some really you know peculiar stares from passerby because that's when people were on high alert um for us to essentially ultimately not feel particularly like we'd been able to to farewell them so it's it's a challenging time for everyone as well. And I look up, I've thought about it a lot. And one of the things I think is really important um, about the stress and anxiety that this time has brought up um, is that anything happening to a person individually is, is, is not a relative concept. So despite the fact that I've had something horrible happen to me, it doesn't make the fact that other people are struggling right now, it doesn't make their pain or anxiety any smaller, mm. you know? So everyone, you, know, you sort of have this adage floating through, through the universe at the moment of being kind to one another. And I perhaps never subscribe to that as much as I truly have um, in the last couple of weeks, but you don't know what's going on in people's lives ever. Um, and right now, is the best time for us to have a small understanding, a little bit of empathy for one another, because everyone's doing it really tough right now. You know, but if that's the lasting lesson that we learn from from the coronavirus pandemic, is that we need to take take more consideration for people um, as we interact in the future. Then, you know, that could be the silver lining of an otherwise horrible, horrible time. You know, not not having that sort of proper process to grieve, and and you know, you must have felt so. Um, I, I don't know, isolated in the sense that you, if you're standing there in the park and people not really understanding what you're going through with your memorial for your children and it's just, you know, coupled in with the coronavirus. It, it's been a terrible year and everyone's going through, you know, different sort of things, but I can't can't imagine what you go through, what, what you went through at the time and, and just thank you so much for sharing that. I think, you know, we're, we're all, coffee people listen to this podcast and I think, coffee people will hear the story that you've just told and and for anyone listening I think that hearing other people's experience and and particularly you know men opening up about the experiences as well is a is a good thing for for people's mental health and 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 if you're feeling in pain I really encourage you to 
to to share with a close friend. You know, doesn't have to be publicly. And Dan's been brave enough to to share his story publicly. Um, but in, you, I really encourage anyone to to contact any relevant mental health service or 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 even speak to a close friend because getting it off your chest it it does feel a whole lot better. And though we're isolated, you know, we're 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 still very well connected with the internet. So. Um, I think um, one thing I just wouldn't mind adding as well, Kurt, just in, in response to, I guess, the coffee industry specifically, um, being that we can trade um, and that we are front-facing, uh, unlike you know some of the restaurants that are able to do contactless ordering and delivery, we're still one of the bastions of creature culture and that people can walk through your doors and still order a coffee and take that time between um, you know the transaction being made and, and the coffee being handed over to actually talk to people. Um, people are starved for... For communication at the moment um, because they're, they're locked away at home. Um, you know, normal people who, who are working from home, they might have their work-related interactions. Um, but outside of that, they might only be really interacting with the, the, the members of their household. Um, and their one escape from that is to walk down to their local cafe. And what unfortunately is I've noticed has been a byproduct of that is that cafes have become a bit of a lightning rod for people's an emotional dumping ground. Mm. Um, we have, you know, at the moment, less people walking through the doors than we did, but for the previous three or four months, everyone who walks through the doors, all they really want to talk about is coronavirus. Mm. Um, and it takes a toll on the people standing behind the counters who have become this sort of impromptu psychologist for, for their customer base. And it's something that I just want to acknowledge to people out there, and I hope that other people can, can hear this and understand that, like, it's, it's actually okay to disengage from it as well. And... The general public, to a point, needs to understand that you know the anxieties that they're expressing are being shared by those people, um, and and perhaps by with a little bit more understanding, they they try and think of something more positive when they walk into their coffee shop. Because I've had the same conversation a hundred times a day for the last three months, and yeah, for, for me personally, um, that's been really really tough because not only has that been happening, I've had my you know I've been dealing with my own. Um, my own grief and sadness in, in the background of that and you haven't I'm naturally a relatively empathetic person but you know, your tolerance for it becomes pretty short-lived after a little while and it's, it's a hard place to be because it's hospitality and you need to be upbeat and trying to be you know making that part, that transaction a better part of that person's day but the longer this drags on the more difficult it becomes to engage in that sort of a mentality particularly when it's being beaten over the head every time someone walks through the door. So the, the struggle's real for people out there at the moment. And we just need to be aware of the fact that it's it's it's, it's kind of toxic and, and dumping it on people all the time um, isn't necessarily... I know there's not a lot, a lot to talk about. There's not a lot to be positive about. But we've just got to try because it's, it's, it's been really tough for people. Well, in this, in, that, that's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about next is, you know, how are we managing our mental health in this time? And obviously, you, I don't really have a, I don't really have a playbook for for that situation where people come and sort of dump their emotions on you, and you know, they they perhaps don't understand that you are sort of having a groundhog day, you know, every single day for the for the last sort of um, six months or whatever, however long it's been. Um, what what are some sort of a what are some tips if you're a service worker? Because let's remember, service workers, not just in hospitality, but in perhaps retail as well, are really 
wearing a lot of this, you know, they're copying abuse for, you know, implementing safety standards and all sorts of things that are um, perhaps people view as a little bit inconvenient um, for them, which, you know, the, no, no one can help that, but, the you know, people do cop abuse and it's been on an elevated scale since this crisis began. But secondly, you've got to maintain your own personal routine because you're, you're right. It, it, there's not a lot to be positive about, but we have to try Dan, what, what, what are some things that you're sort of implementing in, in, in your own sort of daily routine in the cafe and personally to sort of get you through this? Because, you know, your experience both in a business and personal sense has been, has been pretty gruelling. Um, well, look, at this, uh, pretty soon after things happened, I went and saw my GP and got on a mental health plan. Um, people may, may or may not be aware that um, with a referral, like a pretty simple process from, from a GP, you can actually get access to 10 subsidised um, appointments with a mental health professional, which I've taken um, taken advantage of um, and have been seeing someone professionally to help me sort of, I guess, um, process the entire, the entire thing. Um, and I believe they've also just pushed it up, um, that number up, because there was a call. I, I, I was aware that there was a call for an extension of that. So that was that just this can, morning, so, right? Yeah, so yeah, you can get an, an additional. Um, my wife just texted me from the other room to tell me that, um, that it's now twenty. So <laughs> you got one listener, Kirk, at least. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I um, thank you, Alex. Shout out to to Alex Alexandra Dick. Yeah, so look, that's something I would highly, highly recommend. Um, and you know, I think routine is important for people and. It's pretty tough to get motivated to get out and exercise at the moment because of how cold it is. But mm. you know, I'm not always the best at adhering to my own uh, exercise routines or strategies. Um, but I couldn't speak more highly to getting out into in, in the air and that. But um, essentially, we starve for human contact. So you know, like as, as difficult as it becomes, because I'm, I'm not particularly a big fan of Zoom and doing video links or the calling. I'm, you know, particularly once this all started happening, obviously it coincided with my own um, issues with that. In particular, then I wasn't really ready to be um, in a situation like that on a regular basis. But continuing to, you know, like it's easy to sort of lock down into a situation where you're not actually talking to anyone outside of the people in your, you know, in, in your household. So just making sure that we're doing those things, like calling the people that you know, yeah, may know you you know that may live alone. Um, and just trying to keep social as best as we can, you know, like there's it's not too much else for it, but also just, I think, um, being open and honest about how you're going is just so important. And I think society has never been more accepting, um, of, you know, the fluctuations in people's mental health, um, and never been more understanding of, of the pressures that the time is putting on people, um, and just how fragile we all can be. So, Saying something, speaking up first and foremost, if you're struggling, it's just really, really vital. Yeah, there's, there's, there's really no, um, there's really no uh, points for. You can't get the help you need if you if you don't look for it and open up, and that, which is a particularly pertinent point. Now, Dan, you were, uh, we're before we move on, and we, we we always finish the podcast podcast on a positive. Um, with respect to, to the situation you and your wife found yourself in, you were raising money for Red Nose Day. Is that fundraiser still going on? Yeah, it is actually. Um, and as, as it happens, um, we have been asked to be uh, ambassadors for Red Nose. So 
Um, we're not exactly sure what's gonna gonna happen just yet, but no, my wife launched um, on her birthday um, a little charity um, for for the boys in, in honor of George and Henry, um, and we were really happy. It, it actually um, did pretty well. I think we got to about seven thousand dollars, and hopefully, it can keep it going. It's definitely still there though. Yeah, well, all right, well, I'll post a link uh, to that into the Sub Zero bio when when we release oh, mate, the podcast. Oh, that'd be amazing! And uh, really encourage anyone to to um, to to donate to that if if you have the means. Um, yeah, very special cause, and really, hopefully, one day we can get some get some research and get some um, you know some some expertise into the field so that we can avoid situations like this happening again. But yeah. we're going to leave it there for this topic. Dan, thank you so much for uh, talking about that. But we're going to go into cafe sustainability. We've talked about yeah, what's, no what's happened in up till now into to, to this point in August 2020, um, where we are at. Now we've got to talk about the future. Once this crisis is over, if it's over in the foreseeable future, where do we start? I, would, I was of the belief before... You know, last year, and you and I, I reckon you and I have spoken about this at length in the past. That the ca- the ca- the coffee industry in Melbourne—I can't speak for too many other areas um, across the world—but in Melbourne in particular, there are far too many cafes. There was a cliff coming. There was a cliff that that many people were going to fall off before COVID nineteen. I think that's going to. This is only going to sort of um, speed that process up. But I better ask you. Are there too many cafes in Melbourne and restaurants, to that matter? Um, look, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I, I, in the past, I've probably been, been a, a pretty big advocate of saying that there, there are. But in reflection, there are as many businesses in, in the market as a market can sustain. So if, if they couldn't, then they wouldn't, if, if that makes sense. Mm. The thing that puts pressure on us as, as operators and people in the industry is the effect of having what we consider to be saturation. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple supply and demand model. When you're on the oversupply, the price goes down. So we're not able to charge the sort of um, rates that we feel are justified um, for the expense that's related to, to doing business. You know, like coffee shops sort of fluctuate around the $4 mark for a standard coffee. And, you know, the cry is that they should be able to charge 5 or $6. Um, but, you know, if, if there weren't so many cafes, then you'd be selling more items and that number's probably easier to, to accept. But because of the nature of the competition, um, that, that pricing model hasn't been able to be as elastic as we'd like. So from, from my perspective, I think we're a little bit at... Um, We've sort of unfortunately borne the consequence of our own marketing campaign. So Melbourne being a city that is known really well for its thriving hospitality. So people sort of drank the fast water to an extent of understanding, oh, we live in a city with all these great cafes. Maybe I can do that too. Um, and it's, it's meant that the level of competition has had to continue to seek new ways in which to differentiate themselves. So that's pushed up the quality and expense of interiors, um, of equipment, um, which has set the bar higher for entrance for people. So instead of spending $100,000 on a 20-seat, 30-seat cafe, they're spending you know, a quarter of a million um, and things like that, which in itself is unsustainable. So, look, if it continues in the way that it has, then sure, it, it probably can't hold itself under all that weight. 
Um, but that being said, there's still plenty of people out there thriving, you know. So it, it's 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 challenging, you know. But look, I, I mean, I for one would love to be able to charge more for coffee. But you know, you just got to back your guns into an extent, and your business is going to thrive just it's meeting the expectations of your customers, you know. Yeah, well, I guess the the cultural issue that I've always had with this is that the there is an expectation, I guess, that people pay. You know, there's a there's a flat rate for coffee across the city, which you know. Obviously, we need to be understanding that people, even before the crisis, have a budget or, you know, they have to live within their means and, you know, perhaps buying, you know, five, uh, two, two to three coffees a day is not within everyone's means. And if, if you do have that lifestyle choice, then you need to pay less for the coffee. And I understand that. And we all, I think most people understand that you don't, you don't want to bankrupt people because it's just not a nice thing to do. And, um, but I guess, the the cost of the cost of doing business in that way really isn't borne by anyone in Australia. It's borne back at origin, and that's that's coffee producers that you know coffee being a, a commodity, it, it's traded um, and and fluctuates according to demand and supply. And it's not been a it's not been a profitable business model for a lot of producers. And when you couple in the unsustainability of sort of business in in, in their mind, plus the looming threat of global warming which has which will have an existential impact on coffee and and the amount that could be grown is there a bit of a crisis looming there um yeah look it's the fear of um many retailers and wholesalers um that you know the the, the accessibility of the quality that they've come to, to know is, is getting challenging um and obviously, we want to be able to sleep at night. So going over to these, you know, mostly third world countries and, and trying to push the price down that they charge um, has some pretty, you know, interesting ramifications. So look, we we all, I think, collectively, as it's it's kind of double edged sword, isn't it? Because we want to see our industry thrive, and we don't want to see it at the expense of someone else. But someone's got to pay at the end of the day, you know. And if it's not the consumers at our end. Um, then yeah, it's got to be somewhere else. And look, I, I saw that firsthand working in wholesale. The sort of, you know, I guess, the, the pricing model was starting to really change um, towards my, the end of my tenure. You sort of see the sort of deals that would win an account um, in terms of the kilo price just getting lower and lower and lower, and the capital contributions of competitor companies being higher and higher. Like you know, you'd see deals that you. You know, would be reserved for absolute rock star accounts going to mum and pop style shops um, that really probably weren't a sustainable business model. So, you know, there's, there's, there's problems all over the place, to be honest with you. And, and um, yeah, look, unfortunately, from that sense, the, the pressure, it's always sort of downward pressure, isn't it? So, look, if, if the place of production is where ultimately um, that pressure stops, then, you know, we've got to ask ourselves at, at what cost, really. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, another interesting way of looking at this is there might be the expectation of a wholesale account, like you just mentioned, that want $20 per kilo, machine included, they'll buy 40 kilos a week for two years. Um, and some coffee roasters just can't compete with that. And that's not to say that they're not in the business for the right reasons. It's not to say that their coffee is not good. But some companies can just produce it at a lower price than others and, and cater to that and I guess that's just part of the industry now, right? 
Yeah, true. And also, I mean, like certain wholesalers have got a greater appetite for risk and prepared to, you know, wear those sorts of capital contributions um, on borrowed money, essentially, because as we know, interest rates are pretty cheap. Um, but also, some, you know, like the, I think the idea of, you know, the idea of the value proposition from customer to wholesale has changed over the last few years as to an extent the idea of you know, particularly specialty grade coffee has become homogenised. Um, I think there was definitely a time where you could go to a place and be guaranteed of a certain quality of coffee. That experience became something that was desirable and replicable across locations across the city and now that everyone's sort of doing it to a varying degree not really that special anymore um, and that sort of I guess contributed to this I don't want to say identity crisis but I think homogenization of identity across that competition um, and it's forced people to have to trade on things that aren't a straightforward value proposition aren't coffee sourced ethically if it's purchased um, you know, because of its cup score, we roast it like this, and that story is really easily saleable um, to your customers as well. The fact is now that you, you've just got to try and keep your fixed costs as low as possible, and people, when faced the compromise of saying, you know, do you get the ethically um, and sustainably sourced um, coffee at X uh, a kilo versus will give you this stuff, the bag looks great and here's a shiny new machine with it, their sort of ideals are pretty quick to go out the window, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I think an, and another point to add to this is I, th- in a way I sort of agree with you, but in another way I don't because I think the talent pool for staff in the coffee industry is really sort of becoming diluted. A lot of the best baristas want to, they don't want to work on a coffee bar every day because it's hard work. It's hard It's hard on the body sometimes and you don't want to do it for more than 10 years. I would have thought, and um, so say for example, a lot of the best baristas who are really talented and have spent years mastering their craft are going on, moving on to other roles in companies that might be into a sales, might be into roasting, might be into some sort of technical thing, whatever. Um, but a lot of the best staff um, are sort of leaving that, that vocation and they're being replaced with staff that need to be very quickly trained, that need to work effectively and Personally, I think the focus has come away from coffee quality because I think the average coffee uh, in Melbourne over the years has gotten worse. And you might not agree with that, but um, it, you're right. It's becoming far less special, and that's kind of why I do what I do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy that charges up to $30 for one cup of coffee. Um, so for me, I think there's not much incentive for good staff to really stick in the job because the pay is not fantastic. Um, there's, there's what do you mean the pay is not fantastic? I, I would highly argue against that. The, the, okay. the award weight now is significantly more than I ever got paid as a barista. And I would put it to you that I'm a better barista than most of the people in the bars across Melbourne but these days. That's assuming... like baristas don't know how good they've got it, mate. Well, yeah, and you, you are correct to an extent. I think that that, that, that wage has not largely been adhered to it until recently so uh, only very recently has there sort of been yeah so people in my like i had this conversation with some business owners the other day we got it in at just the wrong time where we finished up working for places that thought it was absolutely okay to not pay penalty rates and pay cash in hand and that sort of thing um and by the time we become owners if you set a foot wrong you're you know at risk of being dragged through the mud not just um not just um 
in um, you know in, in the courts, but in, in the public eye as well. God forbid you'd be a wage thief. You know, like when the reality of the situation is the award is extremely complicated and difficult to follow. I am grateful of my own um, idea to open Monday to Friday because it's a straightforward you know, proposition. But you, you work a restaurant that's trading in the evening hours on a Saturday and Sunday. You need a full time employer. You, know, you need a full time staff just to keep an eye on who gets paid what for when. Like payroll is a nightmare these days. Well, and there's there's probably there's probably a um, there's probably going to be some legislation that combats that. But that sort of go back, goes back to what we we're talking about before, Dan. With that in mind, with those costs, so not just coffee, those costs of, of actually paying because th- this is a, th- there's a bit of a compliance issue. A lot of Melbourne cafes have been able to operate because they have not been compliant in with with respect to the awards. And I couldn't I couldn't if you've worked in coffee in the last five years in Melbourne, for let's say you've worked a different place every year, if you were to say to me, you've not been uh, or you've been paid properly at every single venue, I'd probably call you a liar. Yeah, no, it's probably a fair assumption. As I said, look, you know, I don't think, and this is where it gets a little bit murky, really, because I don't think, you know, obviously go back into the way people were paid then and to, and, and then they didn't comply with the award, but it wasn't, it was, it was, it was the whole industry was doing it, you know, like, mm. And, and you'd access those positions with the understanding that you know this, these are the conditions to which you've, you've applied, and every person to an extent has the ability to negotiate on their own terms. Um, but that was the industry standard then. Whereas now, um, you know, the hospitality industry has become this poster boy for non-compliance, and it's and it's difficult because where does that? 50% loading come from, it comes from the profit margin. It doesn't come from customers wanting to pay because plenty of cafes are trying to implement a, a weekend surcharge. You're getting absolutely lambasted for it. You can't even charge um, you know, merchant facilities back on the customers without people getting up in arms with it. Well, the fact of, um, the fact is, as you've alluded to, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to make a craft in this industry because the, the price of the product hasn't changed much in years, yet all your fixed costs continue to increase. You know, it's difficult to even get a CPI index increase on rent because um, most landlords um, want 35 to 4% annual increase. So where does that 35 to 4% come from? Yeah, so if you tried to put your coffee prices up for three or four percent every year, people would, you know, they go to the next best person. And there's always someone out there prepared to do the same thing for less. And that's what I mean. That's this this sort of this sort of comes back to where we're talking about is that are there too many cafes? Because if you're if if you're a consumer and if you're not willing to pay the extra fifty cents for your flat white in the morning and you go to the to the cafe down the road that will charge you less, there's a bit of an issue there. Because um, really, morally, you're doing the right thing by charging a little bit more for your coffee for not only producers but also, you know, paying the staff the legal minimum. And there's there's some moral there's some moral issues that have come up there recently. So, say for example, you're someone that's been working, getting paid cash in hand. So you really the government doesn't know you're employed at all. Um, and say for example, you needed access to some of your superannuation in in the recent times, which. Australians are now allowed to access and for anyone listening overseas that superannuation is sort of a fund that you pay 10% of um, or your employer pays 10% of your salary or wage to which you're able to access in retirement 
And a lot of Australians have accessed those superannuation funds. But if you're someone who's worked for an employer that hasn't paid those, that made those contributions and you needed some of that money desperately now, there wouldn't be a cent in your account for you. And that's where, you know, I think there probably are too many cafes. And, you know, a lot of the cafes that, that shut because of this crisis, and inevitably a lot of them will, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to be left in a situation where there's fewer and perhaps the, the price of coffee uh, on aggregate goes up. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point as well. And I don't think necessarily wholesale operators are 100% to blame for the saturation of the market. I mean, they're not. They're not. Cons- con- and not to have a go at customers here, but you know, consumers are a bit are part of the problem. <laughs> um, the other thing is, like, real estate in general development. You know, like every single new building that goes up has provisions for um, uh, you know a cafe to be put in the bar in the in the bottom. And you know, like we're trying to get ahead. So when you get a real estate agent knocking on the door saying. You know, here's 200 squares at this commercial rate, and you know what, we'll contribute this and that, and you know, and you, you do the numbers and that, and you start to think, oh, this is going to be pretty good. Um, but the problem is that they'll develop down the road and put another cafe in there. There's no, you know, we're cannibalizing our own market by the fact that, as I said earlier, we're, we're sort of really a victim of our own marketing um, in the sense that they sell the dream to people, we sell the lifestyle of, of hospitality, and the reality is it's really difficult to make it work. Um, when there's something new come along every, every other week. Yeah, and, and look, I'll, I'll, I'm perfectly happy to put my opinion out there that um, there are too many cafes in Melbourne and and perhaps, you know, I'm a little bit hypocritical, hypocritical because during a pandemic I just opened one and like I said before, we sell coffee for up to $30, $40 a cup. Um, but I think perhaps there's an issue of genuinity in here that perhaps people aren't in it for the right reasons. People see it as an investment, which ultimately we as an industry need to sort of reflect on, not just coffee, food as well. Food, a, lot of, a lot of good restaurants and good people are doing it tough out there and you know, having their, a lot of their money sort of funneled away through organisations like Uber Eats and stuff like that um, who take a large portion of a sale made online and you know, heaven forbid if someone jacks up their price to sort of, to sort of offset that cost, then their business will be affected because they can scroll through the catalogue and get someone else that's offering a similar product for a fraction of the price. So um, I don't know. I feel like there's a reckoning coming and ultimately... Yeah, but at the same time, Kirk, like people have been saying the reckoning has been coming for years and it sort of has and then it hasn't and it has and then you know, you're right in the sense that this might be the time because um, I think we'll see at whatever point the pandemic starts to, to ease off, a lot of those places maybe will um, you know, have, have their fall because at the moment a lot of places are being propped up um, you know, by shrewd negotiation and you know, the wage subsidies and things like that. But it's, it's not that you know, the spigot's not going to be turned on forever. Like at some point they've got to go, well, if you can't exist, you can't exist. We'll support the person, not the business. Yeah, and that that's that's where I think there's there's sort of a cliff that a lot of a lot of venues are sort of heading to fall. Uh, you know, they're about to fall off because you know one, the wage subsidy can't go on forever. The the sort of holidays from bank loans, you know, they they they'll have to come to us to an end at some point because otherwise the whole financial system of Australia and indeed many other countries around the world could collapse. Um, so. I don't know. I feel like there's there's a there's a looming crisis there, and um, 
Yeah, uh, the, 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 you would have to think as well, Dan, that because well, I've spoken to Ross Quayle on, on this podcast a, f- a few a few months ago, and he said that something really important that stuck with me um, from that podcast is that people have not stopped drinking the amount of coffee that they usually drink. They're just going about it in a different way. And so, you know, what might have been hundreds of thousands of people buying coffee in the city a few a few weeks ago is now people going to Aldi or another large supermarket chain and buying coffee off the shelf and making it at home. So th- the behaviours of people, they, they are changing uh, forcibly and they may remain that way for a long time. Yeah, no, it's... Um it, it is an important point to make, you know, like it's, and as I said earlier, coffee is still one of the few creature comforts people have got, you know, so as long as long as there's places open, you, you will get be able to get a coffee in Melbourne. And, and you, being a great lover of wine, would understand that people are willing to pay hundreds of dollars of wine because they see it as a luxury. Um, and sort of this, this, is, this is where I sort of view the where I think coffee can go, is that I, I think it's, it's a good, um, you know, a good coffee tastes just as good as a great wine if not better um and and hopefully we get to a point where people enjoy coffee like they enjoy wine and are willing to pay you know large amounts for uh for for indeed you know luxury coffee um and because people see coffee as that thing they need in the morning and so it's it's a daily good rather than what it really is and that's that's a crafted thing that someone in in a lot of cases Good producers are going to great lengths to produce great coffee that that's propping up this industry, and you know there's not a financial incentive in it for them. Then they could close, they they could shut up shop too, and and which would have a, indeed a huge impact. And you look at somewhere like Brazil, the largest coffee producing nation in the world. Not only are they sort of do they bear the brunt of this as they did in 20, 2018 when there was a huge oversupply of coffee. But now, as of today, 100,000 people in that country have died because of coronavirus and producers mm-hmm. are having issues sourcing staff to pick, the, to pick the cherries which are hard to make coffee. So the impacts of that, you know, we may see severe impacts of that in months or years down the line. Yeah. Sorry to get on there, yeah. but negative, but <laughs> it, could, it, could, it could sort of be where we go. Yeah, he's open a bottle of wine now, man, after that. Thanks. Well, mate, the good the the good thing about that is that yes, you can indeed open, uh, you know. So this, these are, these are just talking points, and that's not to say that this will be what happens and how our industry will go in the future. This is just a discussion that I think is healthy to have, and um, you know, being a dynamic. Yeah, well, I I think there's the other point to the the side this though as well, Kurt. And looking and saying that there are too many cafes in that. Look. I think if you sat down with the owner of any business, none of them's going to say that oh, they've, they've opened the cafe to make millions. You know, I think more, more often than not, people have opened up hospitality venues, want to embrace that way of living, and they want to embrace that um, that methodology of interaction. You know, for me, Nigel, my cafe was very much on about integrating into a, a local community of people um, and trading on that value proposition in that. You, know, you make someone's day just slightly better when they get a delicious coffee put in their hand, um, especially when it's done with a bit of conversation, when you've remembered their order, when you remember their name, when you've just made their day slightly better. And that's something that um, like I've encouraged people around us in the industry as well, just to remember, like what we do, as simple as it seems, 
um, at the moment is one of people's few luxuries that they can go out and gain access to. So don't take that for granted. And what you're doing is making people really happy. Mm, exactly. And I think coffee is the love language of most Melburnians. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the way to most of our hearts and indeed something we, we as a city probably couldn't live without. Could you imagine the panic buying that would ensue if roastery, roasteries were closed down? No, I'd be nuts. It'd be insane. You know, it's, um, yeah, I couldn't imagine a day without coffee right now. That'd be absolutely. Oh, I, was, I was pretty terrified um, if they were, when, you know, the stage four lockdowns were being explained, they'd say, oh, can you, um, you, you can't trade at cafes. I was like, well, does that mean I can actually go to my cafe and make coffee for myself there? Because I don't have a home set up really, because I live at work. So <laughs> I was scrambling for a minute going, I, I don't, I, 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 pass out from the headaches if I couldn't get access to coffee. Well, this is why I think freezing is such a good thing because you can put it in your freezer and you can you, you can just sort of hoard, you know, all this coffee in, in your freezer if you get into it. And um, I think I've been on the record all saying there's never been a more important time to freeze coffee, but this podcast hasn't been about that. But anyway, Dan, we always finish the podcast on a positive and we, I was, I was very um, happy to see a few weeks ago on your Facebook that the satirical geniuses at The Chaser wrote an interesting article about you. And and I, I'm going to read it. It says, the title of it is Struggling Cafe Owner Set for Life After Josh Frydenberg, who is Australia's federal treasurer, buys a sandwich for $200 million. And it's a picture of you because, of course, you're at the bottom of Josh's office. And the story reads as this. A cafe in Melbourne, a, a cafe owner in inner in Melbourne Inner East has struck it rich after Josh Frydenberg walked in and bought a sandwich from the struggling establishment. The sandwich normally sells for $7, but Mr. Frydenberg instead paid $200 million for the chicken and salad sandwich with mayonnaise, which he later described as a bit stale. Which, you know, I've had your toasties, Dan. They're not stale. <laughs> Mr. Frydenberg initially blamed Treasurer and his staff for the slip-up, but he later, later said he had nothing to apologise for. In the grand scheme of things, I only got the cost of the sandwich wrong by $199,993. I don't even know if I pronounced that correctly, which is basically a rounding error compared to last week's $60 billion mistake, which actually happened. The government made a $60 billion rounding error. Um, mate, you, you struck famous in that article. Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. I had, it, I had that sent to me a few times, and I, I think my, my stock response was, yeah, finally made it into a meme. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's funny because, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, the treasurer, Josh Weidenberg, his office is down the road, and um, he actually came in to have a conversation with me uh, shortly after that. He thought it was hilarious. His, his staff told me that any time he gets um, featured on things like the Chaser or Batuta, it's like their responsibility to forward it to him immediately. Um, but he came in to have a chat with me sub subsequently to that and for a little photo op. Um, and when they sent me the, the photo, I shared it to the chase. I was hoping they'd pick it back up again because it was a bit of good publicity for us and just said, uh, Frydenberg comes in for another $200 million sandwich. Cafe owner now in a position to buy Virgin Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, you, you've obviously struck gold there and, um, you know, the, the, the $200 million will, will do you well for a few years, I hope. Hell, yeah, well, see me into my retirement for that super that never got paid, hey? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, if, if you're in that boat, ho hopefully you weren't, but, um, you know, if you're in that boat, then, hey, you, you, you're set for, I hope you're set for life, Dan. Thank you very much, mate. Well, Dan, I think we've been going for an hour and 12 minutes now. Thank you so much for your time today, mate, and obviously 
you know, recapping, we spoke about some pretty, some pretty deep personal stuff and a lot of good business discussion, a lot of robust discussion, which I encourage, you know, on the podcast, it's a bit boring if everyone, everyone agrees with you all the time. So um, I'm glad we get, we got to have a few minor disagreements, but yeah, Dan, it's, 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 it's all good. And, you know, a bit of controversy is good for the podcast, I, I guess. Uh, always a pleasure, Kirk, and uh, yeah, I hope you're staying safe and engaged in this otherwise boring phase of existence. Yeah, well, mate, uh, there's 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 plenty of good for for anyone listening. There's plenty of good podcasts coming up, and eventually we're going to have a YouTube channel as well, which we're just sort of working out the finer detail of. But thank you to the sponsors of this podcast, which are Slayer Slayer Espresso and Riverina Fresh. It's not fresh unless it's Riverina Fresh. Dan, you have a wonderful day, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, mate. As always, everyone, stay cool.